Welcome everyone to the Reformed Confessional Podcast. My name is John Fry, and as always, we exist to promote Reformed Confessionalism, to proclaim the sufficiency of Scripture, and to extol the supremacy of Christ over all things. Thank you so much for joining me today in what will be a great study of the sin and sorrow of Israel's kings. We will look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and then we'll go back to 1 Samuel and compare King David and King Saul One will show us what godly sorrow is, and the other will show us what worldly sorrow is. Hopefully, by the end, you'll be able to open your heart to our Lord and Savior for examination to see if the type of sorrow that you have over sin is worldly or godly. But before I do that, I just wanted to, one, review a little bit, and two, comment on a little bit of a a change, an addition that I think is good here at Reformed Confessional. I wanted to just encourage you and look back to calendar year 2022, share with you that we ran the data on our analytics page and we were able to send this in the form of our blog and exegetical studies and blogcast and this podcast you're listening to on our website, reformconfess.com, to 97 different countries and territories in calendar year 2022. I hope you can picture this in your mind. The way that our analytics is displayed geographically, it just brings up a map. It's kind of like a heat map where it's darker, where we have more readers, more clicks, more time spent on the page, and lighter progressively where there's less. And what you can see on the map in six continents, we haven't broken into Antarctica yet, so that's unfortunate, but in all six continents aside from that one, you can see the different and darker and lighter shades, and then it gives a report. And it is just so incredible and humbling that this message, uh, God's love, God's hope, from a Reformed and confessional perspective from the various writers at our website, is generally going out to the nations. And it's very encouraging. It's very exciting. And I have a smile on my face as I share that with you. So I wanted to encourage you, the listener, one, thank you so much for being a part of that. And secondly, I wanted to ask you for your prayers to continue that the Lord would use us and use you uh, to really affect the nations. And some of the countries are surprising. They're places where our our life would be endangered (laughs) if we were physically there, which that would be okay. Um, But it's humbling to be there, and we wanted to thank you for that. And if you ever are able to or have it on your heart, you can always support us at our Patreon page on our website again at reformconfess.com. So thanks for being a part of that, however it is that you give, whether it's reading, listening, praying, or you financially support us. We're very thankful for that. One other quick thing before we get into the subject at hand is recently we have added another contributor to our website, and that is Brother Rob Smith. Rob lives with his wife Ryan and his three baby girls out in New Mexico. When I first met Rob, wow, almost a decade ago, probably more than a decade ago in Georgia where we went to church together and then uh, various military duty stations separated us and here we are all this time later. God has been certainly more faithful to us (laughs) than we have to him in that time, but I'm thankful that God has kept us. He has sanctified us. He has grown us and now we can bring Rob alongside here at Reformed Confessional He is from a 1646 Presbyterian perspective, and his first article was released this past Wednesday, which was February 15th, I do think so, and it was called Sing the Lord's Prayer, and he put sheet music in a nice video and gave some compelling reasons why we want to pray the Lord's Prayer 
but also we want to sing the Lord's Prayer individually, within our families, at family worship, and within our churches. So we thank him for that, and you can check that out on the website. But with that, thank you so much for your patience. We are going to get in to the reign and sin of King Saul and the reign and sin of King David. So as an introduction, what I wanted to hopefully give you a tool that you can utilize in your Bible reading, your Bible study, maybe you're a preacher or a teacher. This is a tool for your toolbox, a weapon for your arsenal. It's something that I think has really helped me once I heard about this and hearing about it is the fruit of what we're covering today. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul writes, quote, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So what Paul is writing to Corinthians here is the difference in godly grief, or other translations have it as godly sorrow, against worldly grief or worldly sorrow. On one hand, Paul says there is godly sorrow that produces repentance, leading to salvation without regret. But on the other hand, there's worldly sorrow that produces death. So you have godly versus worldly, and you have salvation versus death. So the godly sorrow leads to salvation. The worldly sorrow leads to death. How do you know when you are sorrowful over something sinful? Whether is, is it worldly or is it godly? And the aforementioned teaching technique that I want to impart on you now, I first heard by Pastor John MacArthur was being very intentional to open up how he studies and how he prepares and how he tries to teach his people under his long, enduring, faithful ministry. And one of the techniques that he said in this particular, I can't remember if it was an interview or a sermon, but he was saying when there is a biblical concept and he is teaching about it, what he likes to do is grab that concept and go to somewhere else in the Bible and find an example of it. And that's what we're going to do today. We are going to look at an example of godly sorrow that produced salvation and worldly sorrow that produced death. And what that hopefully does for you, the listener, is helps you grasp what godly sorrow looks like and what worldly sorrow looks like, that we may pursue through God's mercy, grace, and patience and faithfulness to us, godly sorrow, and shun worldly sorrow. So what will we do to develop this from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10? We're going to look back in the Old Testament, and we're actually going to look at the united monarchy of Israel. We're going to compare the reign and sin of King Saul with the reign and sin of King David. So it'll take just a little backstory of King Saul and a little backstory of King David. But what we want to develop here is that both men committed sin, both men were confronted by a man of God, and both men responded much differently. One responded in a way that we would say is worldly sorrow, and the other in a way that we would say is godly sorrow. Remember, the aim would be application for us, is your sorrow. And as I say this, I look in the mirror, is my sorrow over sin, is it more worldly and concerned with what other people think or shunning harsh consequences from sin, or is it godly, one that takes ownership and one that is broken because of the relationship with God that has been strained? So with that, let's get into a little bit of history. So we have a tall and handsome Benjaminite by the name of Saul, and he was anointed by God's prophet Samuel. And this story 
stretches across the book of 1 Samuel will mainly be talking around the contents of chapters 11, probably through 13 here with King Saul. But I definitely recommend reading this. I think First and Second Samuel, they just read like an action story. I remember the first time I read through them, I felt like I had gotten done watching a movie. We see there is a blessing in the initial stages of Saul's reign in Israel, which is captured in First Samuel chapter 10 and First Samuel chapter 11. In the first 11 verses of First Samuel chapter 11, we see that in short order, Saul unifies over 330,000 people within Israel and Judah in the thorough defeat of the Ammonites. And so this would be military success. And within a few years, he found himself in another conflict with a very formidable foe, the Philistines. But this time, instead of unifying the people in military victory, it seemed like everyone was just afraid. And so they hid themselves. What 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 6 says is that they hid in holes, rocks, tombs, and cisterns. Could you imagine that? They were hiding in tombs. I wonder if there were dead folk in the tombs yet. And that would be desperation. If you're willing to hide among the dead, uh, that'd probably be a really interesting study to do. I might have to do that and see if, you know, if there's any history or archaeology uh, on these specific tombs. But the even worse, you know, King Saul, who should be the one at the forefront and leading the charge, what we see with Saul is this unwillingness to engage and defend God's people, who he has God on his side. And Saul, while he's at Gilgal, and the people are trembling, and everyone's hiding, and they're, they're afraid of the Philistines, he commits this sin. And specifically, what he does is he offers the burnt offering. So he waits about seven days. Samuel is nowhere to be found. Saul gets impatient, and he offers this burnt offering. And 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 9 records this and following. Immediately after offering the burnt offering, Samuel comes and greets King Saul. And he inquires about this participation in the burnt offering, and Saul admits his actions. He does that, and Samuel immediately rebukes him for not keeping the commandment of the Lord. And why was that? Because priests are the only ones that may offer the sacrifice to God according to the Jewish law. Only two chapters later, King Saul disobeys the Lord's command again. What the Lord commands him is to not spare any person or animal from among the Amalekites. Again, you see this disobedience from King Saul. The second time here in his reign that he sins, the king of Israel fails to obey the command of the Lord. And this leads to the anointing of his successor, which is the shepherd from Bethlehem, David. In a very stark transition within this entire narrative, if you could say part one and part two, I would look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. It's act one is King Saul. It's his reign and his sin that we've just kind of briefly highlighted. And it transitions very, very distinctly. In verse 13 of 1 Samuel chapter 16, it says, quote, the spirit rushed upon David. And in the very next verse, it says, quote, now the spirit of the Lord departed Saul. So here we see a transition from Saul to David. And we would say what led to Saul's fall, his sin. And as we'll see in a moment, we will look at his response to the sin. But with this stark transition, and we start Act 2, or Part 2, as I think of it as, as I read through it, the story advances to the military successes of David. And that's reminiscent to Saul's victory over the Ammonites. We see David slaying the Philistine giant on behalf of Saul and Israel. Instead of Saul standing up 
And I also find it a little bit ironic that Saul is known for his height, and here's this giant Goliath, but David was the opposite. He was small, and he was the youngest, and but he's the one who stands. And we see the significance of the Spirit of God working in David to stand before the giant. David's military success here leads, of course, to his popularity. And Saul basically just gets jealous. And that leads to rage and harassment. And finally, Saul's death. Now, David mourns the tragic death of Saul. Of course, I've, I've really glossed over some really... Uh, it, it's just a great narrative to learn, but it's also entertaining. It's a really good read. Very well-written, well-composed narrative here. David mourns Saul's death. And Saul, it's, it's, David's even an honorable man. You can see that here because he knows that Saul is God's anointed. He's the king of Israel. And even though he tried to kill him, even though he harasses him, David mourns his death. And following that, David begins his reign over the united monarchy of Israel. Now, the early years of David's reign, they're full of military triumph and national success. God covenants with David, and we know that is the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, saying, quote, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, what we see is Saul starts out, he has some military success, and he falls into repetitive sin. And the Spirit leaves him. The Spirit rushes upon David. David starts out with military success and unification. But then here comes David's sin. Despite God's promises, despite the Spirit's indwelling, despite God's covenant with him, David, like his predecessor Saul, subject to the fall of Adam, struggles with personal sin, and he fails to obey the commands of God. And we see that in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David looks out, lingering upon the bathing body of Bathsheba. His eyes inform his heart, hey, here's the opportunity, go get it. So in short order, we see that David's affair with Bathsheba leads to the successful murder plot of her husband, Uriah. And David stands in violation of, you know, I've heard people say all the commandments, uh, probably, but he's committed adultery, he has committed murder, and he is guilty of coveting, and specifically coveting his neighbor's wife. You can see those in Exodus chapter 20, verses 13, 14, and 17. So we've laid it out before you. On one hand, we have King Saul, who sinned by disobeying God and offering the burnt offering. And then he disobeyed God by sparing people among the Amalekites. He was told not to spare any person or animal from among them. Then we have David, who rises up and has a different kind of sin, where he did obey the Lord in the military triumphs. He failed morally. And as Paul wrote, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. Worldly grief produces death. So what we want to look at now is Saul's worldly sorrow. And again, remember, we're just looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, and we're saying that Saul gives us a really good example of what worldly sorrow that produces death is, and David will give us a really good example of what godly sorrow that produces salvation is. With Saul kicking this off, we see that following his sin in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel, the prophet of God, confronts the king regarding his sin. And here is what Saul said. He says, quote, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. 
And that's specifically in verse 24 of 1 Samuel chapter 15. And although Saul is, is keenly aware that he was afraid of men, his words are less of a confession of sin and more of an excuse for sin. He says, I have transgressed. And the word transgress means to pass over. And this is a very passive, almost blame-shifting kind of thing. Saul is saying, I overlooked the commandment of the Lord. I just overlooked it. He's basically saying, I, I overlooked the Lord's commandment. And when I read this, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Who does that remind you of? It reminds me of Exodus chapter 32, Aaron and the golden calf. He listens to the people. And then Moses comes down. He's like, hey, the people told me to do it. Saul, brother man, you are the king. The people obey your voice, not the other way around. And fear of man drives him to do this. But what we see is I passed over the command of the Lord. The, you know, I obeyed the people's voice, not God's voice. Well, the king has a great responsibility to God because of his position here. And any doubt of Saul's worldly sorrow here. So some people might look at that and go, well, you know, he does say, yeah, I sinned. And this is why I sinned. But any doubt of that, that this is worldly sorrow fades when Saul's real motives for admitting his sin come out in verse 30. When Saul pleads for Samuel to honor him before the people. That's what he says. He says, yeah, I sinned, but hey, would you honor me before the people anyway? He is so worried about what the people will think. It probably led him into the sin, fear of man. It It surely seems like it did. He was more afraid of the people than he was of God. So I'm going to read it to you uh, for yourself. And I want to say before I do, it's easy to look back thousands of years in history and, you know, to say, what were you thinking? But the point of this and what helps me is to reflect in my own heart. Uh, you know, is, where is this in me? So here's how it reads in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. It has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. And again, there, that's, that's why I say we see this worldly sorrow. He is concerned about worldly things. Yes, I've sinned, and you've just told me, the man of God has just told me that the kingdom is going to be ripped out of my hands, and he is less concerned about the heart of God and what God would have him do, and even the status of his kingship, and he wants honored before the people. How does that play out in our life? Perhaps we've sinned and... I want everyone who can hear this to know that um, I am included in what I'm about to say, but we sin, and sometimes uh, we even confess that we sin, which just simply means to agree with God on what we uh, what He already knows. We're just agreeing with Him. Sometimes our repentance is not motivated out of God-glorifying desires, but rather 
how can we ease the consequence of my sin for myself? And I think one of the things that I would just say is as we look at Saul, he does. He's quick to say, yep, messed up, yep, messed up, yep, messed up. Can you get me in front of the people? Can you get me in front of the people? And so clearly his motive is he likes, seems like he likes the glory of men. And he didn't want uh, to take the requisite time with God to deny himself of that gratification. One of the things that gives us a, a really good sense of godly sorrow as we transition into how David responded when he was confronted with sin is in chapter 15, paragraph 3 of the Second London Baptist Confession. It's of repentance unto life and salvation. Remember, we're saying godly sorrow leads to repentance. Godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to life. Here's what the confession says, quote, This saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person, being by the Holy Spirit, made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow. And so the confession would say that godly sorrow would consist of perhaps this, detestation of sin and self-abhorrency. The confession goes on saying, quote, Praying for pardon and strength of grace, with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God until all well-pleasing in all things. To walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. And what this shows is our priority, how do we mark worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow, is we are focused on the world. What would people think of me? What am I losing because of my sin? But godly sorrow is focused on God. And that's what the confession says. And as we're going to see here in just a moment, that's what happens in David's heart. So we've seen Saul's refusal to come to a point of godly sorrow. And we know that results in his downfall and his death. But now we see David's godly sorrow. Following David's sin in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan confronts the king. So you you see a, a real parallel. You had Saul military success, unification, sin confronted by Samuel. And then you see David, military success, unification, sin confronted by Nathan. And Nathan confronts David with a parable. And once David realizes his sin, here's what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, quote, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, I think the words there are particularly telling when we compare them to what Saul says. Saul says, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. But he sees it as breaking a commandment. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Whatever your opinion may be on that, I think the author is intentional to show. Saul says, I've transgressed a commandment. I've overlooked it. But David's heart is broken and he is showing godly sorrow because the focus of his transgression is the Lord the person God. And by reading the rest of chapter 12, you can discern the difference between David's heart and Saul's. David cries out to God. He worships God and he accepts the consequences of his sin. And additionally, Psalm 51 displays David's godly sorrow. This is a psalm of repentance. This is the essence of godly sorrow. And it's in significant contrast to King Saul, Where Saul wanted to be glorified from the people, David falls on his face and cries out. The people were afraid to approach him because of his hurt, because of the sin and the consequences that were following. But in Psalm chapter 51, verse 4, 
following his adultery and murder and covetousness, David shows his God-centered concern, stating, quote, against you, you only, have I sinned. David's sorrow is godly and produces repentance that leads to salvation. So I wanted to end with a little bit of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Shout out to the Westminster Larger. It contains a very wise, very pertinent question. It asks, quote, Whence ariseth the imperfection of sanctification in believers? I think another faithful way to ask this question is, why do true believers still sin? Why is it? Why do we sin even though we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us? And here's the answer. This is question 78, question answer 78 of the Westminster Larger. Whence ariseth the imperfections of sanctification in believers, or why do true believers still sin? Here it is. The imperfection of sanctification in believers ariseth from the remnants of sin abiding in every part of them and the perpetual lustings of the flesh against the Spirit. And their best works are imperfect and defiled in the sight of God. And here, we learn the lesson that as long as we breathe, we will undoubtedly sin. In these times, we must, like David, come before our Heavenly Father with godly sorrow, with detestation of our sin, and, as the Second Line of Baptist Confession says, self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength, which is exactly what we see David doing in 2 Samuel chapter 12 following his sin. And I think that displays godly sorrow. So I want to end today with thanking you for your time and devotion to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. And when I look at the life of King David following his sin and his godly sorrow, I think verse 11 is seen in every bit of that. There's earnestness. There's a eagerness to clear himself, indignation, fear, longing, zeal. At every point, he proved that the Lord was the one that he sinned against, and the Lord was the one whom he wanted to be reconciled with. And godly-focused repentance is the essence, it's the theme, it's the substance of what godly sorrow is. With that... I hope that this has been helpful for you, and I hope that you will join us next time or visit us at reformconfess.com. Have a blessed day.